Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, everyone. Today is a holiday, so we're playing you an episode we taped last spring with Brooke Shields about her life growing up in a toxic industry where she was constantly sexualized from a very young age. It's an important conversation from a very wise and insightful woman, and we've delved into how social media has changed things. It feels timely given the recent conversation around social media and kids' safety. Have a listen. everyone from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is the jury from the Utah ski trial and she is Gwynnicent. Just kidding. No, she is. This is On with Kara Swisher and I'm Kara Swisher in what was the stupidest trial of all time. And I'm Naima Raza. It's so sad to see the end of the White Lotus season three, aka Park <laughs> City Fashion Week. These celebrities countersuing for a dollar as Taylor Swift did and as Gwyneth Paltrow did seems to turn a trick. You know, as Roy Wood Jr. said, it is literally the whitest trial ever. And so <laughs> I just didn't know. He did a great, for anybody who really enjoys The Daily Show, he is a real highlight on that show now. And he's been doing reports from the trial and they're fantastic. I gotta say, I, I want to make a documentary of it because it just plays so well when they ask her about her suffering and she says, well, we lost half a day of skiing. And then she can't even help but smile. I know, but the guy against her was worse, so it didn't really matter. I know. Celebrity culture is very different than you and I. Well, the Gwyneth Paltrow trial is actually indicative of a fascination that our culture has with these power women whose idealized version kind of like taunts us and haunts us. And it's something relevant to our guest today, Brooke Shields. Yeah. Brooke Shields is a, a unique character in sort of the annals of just not just celebrity, but modeling. And she's such a nexus of everything. I mean, it was such an impactful thing. As this was when I was, we're around the same age, you know, but mm -hmm. all the obsession with her looks and the sexualization of young girls, it, it all plays into issues we have today. Yeah. Let's set up the interview a bit for listeners who may not realize what a megastar Brooke Shields was in the 80s. You know, it, it's, it's such a different thing because everybody's famous and everybody can be an influencer. And there's so many different avenues of fame now. But at the time, it was all very distilled into a few figures at any one time. And she was famous forever, starting when she was a little girl, when she was a, a model. And then she sort of popped onto the scene because of this movie, Pretty Baby, she was in, where she played a daughter of a prostitute who then 
essentially became a prostitute, but she was, I don't know, 12? Yeah, or maybe 11 even. Very young. And so it was a big deal. She also was so striking and Mm -hmm. was also a model. And then she was in these Calvin Klein ads. They had TV ads, and they also had these amazing billboards that were impossible to look away from. And they were beautifully rendered, beautifully photographed. The copy was terrific. They were entertaining. But it didn't take away from the fact that this was a very young girl writhing around on the floor in very tight jeans. And so the whole message was so fucked up. I don't even know. It was so fucked up and impossible not to look at. Yeah. She married a famous tennis star, etc. Andre Agassi, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Culturally, like I remember her as a kind of comedic star in a later phase of her career, which we'll get into. But now there's been this big trend of reclaiming the narrative from women who were representing Presenting what it meant to be female in the 80s and 90s. So whether it's the documentary by Pamela Anderson and now this, you know, two-part documentary on Hulu, incidentally also called Pretty Baby, ironically, um, we're hearing them tell the stories of their own lives and break down those kind of carefully curated images of themselves. What was interesting about this documentary by Brooke Shields is that she doesn't play the victim. She's very thoughtful about a complex topic, which is why I appreciate it. She didn't immediately say I was taken advantage of or this and that. She's thinking about it. And you can come to many different conclusions watching this thing. She has a sense of her own kind of role and agency and the benefits she got from this and also the difficulties and challenges she needed to surmount. And I think she's trying to be as, you know, removed from it as possible as she talks about it, even like looks a little compartmentalized when she speaks about it on the screen. Well, when she's young, particularly, you can see it. Yeah. She uses that word a lot, compartmentalized. And, you know, she had these moments when people would ask her just the worst questions. You know, you're so pretty. Like, oh, it was creepy. Yeah. It's just you couldn't do that today, 100%. But, you know, I have since had a daughter. I have mostly sons. But boy, yeah. do I think about it a lot when people talk to my daughter. She's very young and, and pretty. And they, they say that to her. And I'm I, I it, it's, it really puts my a skin on edge when it happens because it's it's weird the, the prettyization of girls so that's not new you know i feel that every that's always been a value to strive for and it's a kind of constant ideal for women to hit. I think the difference now is that like when I was a kid I didn't expect to look like Brooke Shields. She was not regular, she was special, you know. Yeah. And now I think there's an expectation to look like that because we have Instagram, Photoshop for all, yeah. plastic surgery, Ozempic. And it just feels like normal has kind of been elevated to this Brooke Shields type status, which is, yeah. it's not true and it's distorting. And it, the fact that it feels accessible, but isn't. Yeah, it certainly hasn't gotten better, right? We'll get to that, uh, to the interview in just a second, but I want to ask you about a major evolving news story, which sets the context for all of this, which is the impact of social media on teens, and in particular, mm-hmm. the conversation has been around teen girls. So obviously, there was the internal studies leaked by Facebook whistleblower Francis Hagen in 2021. And then we've had kind of many years of social media and teen health data that Jonathan Haidt and Jean Twenge have been collecting. And then earlier this year, the CDC study of 17,000 teens and said that almost three in five U.S. teen girls felt persistently sad or hopeless, and one in three have contemplated suicide. So huge amount of data coming out. And there's still, scientifically, you would say it's correlation, not causation. Although, Mm -hmm. of course, we see a huge elbow, what Jonathan Haidt calls an elbow in the data, starting around 2012-ish. And that uptick in depression, particularly for young women, you know, 
people feel like, what's the better answer than social media? So I'm curious what your lens is on it. It's indicating that. That's correct. There's not total proof that this is happening. Um, In this case, it's very clear that the addiction combined with almost constant imagery of comparative Mm -hmm. nature is causing all kinds of mental health issues, including adding on the pandemic where people were isolated and not in schools and not seeing each other face-to-face. You know, again, I have older sons who do this, but they've turned off all their social media. It doesn't make them feel good. And they just say it very simply. It doesn't make me feel good. And so I think over the years, we'll see that, that this is exactly what was the issue, the mental health issue, that has taken basic issues that young people have about self-esteem and put them on steroids. And I think we're going to be not surprised by the results ultimately over time. Do you think we'd be better off today if there had been some kind of moratorium on social media in order to understand its effect on kids or think about age gating in different ways? Something similar to the moratorium that Elon and Steve Wozniak are calling for. That's a little more complex. Yeah, but the idea of a moratorium to get ahead of the effects. Uh, I don't know. You don't know until you know, right? I'm not big on moratoriums. They should have had privacy and safety rules in from the start, and we left it to them to do it, and they didn't do it because, as I always say, these people who designed it never felt unsafe a day in their lives, Mm. and so they didn't understand lack of safety that women feel, people of color feel, uh, marginalized people feel, and so therefore it's not the safety isn't there, and it's too late. Yeah, and the way that Andrew Bosworth talked about it, I think, is like it's not nicotine, it's sugar, and so you kind of have to control your own dose. Not, (laughs) Yes, thanks, Boz. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Whatever. Well, we are where we are, and... Brooke Shields has a great story to tell about some of how we got here. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with the interview. Support for this episode comes from SAS. How is AI affecting how you learn, work, and socialize? And what do you need to know to make responsible use of it as a business leader, worker, and human in the world? Find out when you listen to Pondering AI, a podcast featuring candid conversations with experts from across the AI ecosystem. Pondering AI explores the impact and implications of AI, for better and for worse, with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data scientists. Check out Pondering AI wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from Babbel. 
Learning a new language doesn't just give you dozens of new ways to swear. Studies show that people who learn new languages develop better memories and get more comfortable solving difficult problems. In turn, confidence improves and perspectives open, allowing for more flexibility no matter what life brings to the table. If you're ready to make a new language part of your routine, Babbel can help. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with lessons created by real people for real conversations. Babbel doesn't rely on artificial intelligence to build its 10-minute lessons. Instead, they are handcrafted by more than 200 language experts focused on teaching phrases and vocabulary you'll actually need to communicate. I've used Babbel myself. I'm trying to learn Spanish since I spent four years trying to learn it in high school and then again in college. And I have to say, I'm doing a lot better with Babbel. I use it on the go when I'm traveling. It's super easy to do these 10-minute, five-minute lessons. It reminds me every day, and I do it. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash swisher. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash swisher, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash swisher. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hi, Brooke. Hi, how are you? I want to get into this documentary and start with your early career. And as you note, the compartmentalization of your life. Um, you came up as a child actor and model. The amount of material you have about yourself was amazing. These archives, uh, the archival photos, I- I'd never seen some of these things. Uh, my mom, you know, it was this, she just kept everything. I mean, she kept every newspaper clipping and then would get multiples and saved them all and had them in banker's boxes. And they were all in this one room in my house when I was in California. And I just thought either this stuff is going to disintegrate or I'm not quite sure if it is a legacy. I don't know. I just thought I might as well digitize this stuff. And I hired somebody who ended up becoming a very close person in our lives. And it took them about six years to digitize it all. And I just thought at the very least, I can give it to my kids one day. And Mm -hmm. this is the life your mother led. (laughs) Or or maybe when I got a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Academy Awards. (laughs) (laughs) So you had all this material um, and you put it together as your life. What was your hypothesis here? Why did you do this? Why did I do the film? Mm Mm-hmm. You know what? I think I didn't set out to prove anything. And I I was very glad that the topic was going to just not be me, mm-hmm. but really talk about sexualization of young women and mm-hmm. how America does it and how America is different and how it changes based on what America needs it to be to serve its purposes at that particular time. So that was the intellectual piece of it. Um, the ego piece of it, or the, I don't know, personal piece of it, I had to get over at first because what I wanted it to be in my ego was a retrospective of all the amazing talent that I displayed. (laughs) And look at me in this. And I wanted my daughters to say, oh my God, you're so funny. And yet, oh, you can be talented. And oh, and she's smart. And so there were all these like little insecure ego pieces that I immediately thought, oh, oh, this is going to be cool. And then I stepped out of that and I thought, you know what? This is a life that is very unique in the way it has survived, you know? Mm -hmm. And 
when I look at who I am today, part of me really sees me as a little girl. Like I'm a little bit that same person that you see Mm -hmm. in those early interviews. Um, But I'm also someone who has really gone through a lot. And I'm very proud of how I navigated it. And my story is not that different from everybody else's. Right. You just don't see it in, in on the screen. You don't see it in ads and things like that. So let's talk about your breakout role in Pretty Baby. You play the daughter of a prostitute raised in 1900s uh, New Orleans brothel, uh, who then becomes a prostitute. I remember this film. It was very disturbing. I was, I'm was i a little bit older than you, but not much. Um, and I remember being deeply disturbed by this movie, and I didn't know why. Really? I wasn't quite old enough. Absolutely. Um, I got to watch everything. My parents didn't monitor me in any way, but that's a different, that's a different story. Um, but you were 11 years old when it was shot. You, you talk about it, and what's interesting to watch you do interviews about it is you don't have a blank stare because you're very present, but you're, you definitely disassociate when you're looking at those videos. And every now and then they catch your face and, and it's blank. And it's really interesting to watch those interviews. Um, and I'll get into how these men interview you, which is somewhat appalling when you look at today. And why, I don't know why it's more appalling in some way, but women as well. You well, you're know. 11 because yeah. you're 11, you yeah. know. So you talk about it as a job and even now you do. Is that, do you think that's the case? Do you think about it that way still? I mean, maybe it's disassociation. It's very possible. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the interesting thing about filmmaking is that it's so far from reality when you're doing any of it, that it's, it's not, it did not affect me the way the film itself affected people. Um, and it, it was a job. I mean, it was, I didn't feel, it's just so strange because I keep getting asked this question and I think the desire is for me to say how miserable I was and how uncomfortable I was and how I knew something was wrong. And but that's, it just wasn't the case. I mean, I think my focus was so laserly focused on Mm-hmm. My mother, making her happy. Yeah, and she kept calling it art, which was interesting. Keeping, that was well, well, keeping her alive. Mm-hmm. And again, this wasn't. It wasn't just a tool in the film. I grew up in New York City in a very eclectic, bohemian, um, diverse way in Manhattan. You know, she was taking me to see Rocky Horror Picture Show in gay bars with my friends and experience it. We And they all, like, all the performers loved me and, and were sweet and let me play with their makeup. And, you know, and then, and then I would go home and go to school the next day. So there was this, I wasn't shocked. Nothing shocked me. And we weren't Puritan. My, my mom was Catholic. She was a very, she was a paradox. I mean, she you know, constantly two things were always happening. But she talked about everything. We talked about everything. Mm-hmm. And again... Well, she she made you an adult well before you were an adult in a lot of... She, she, you were her companion and... And, and uh, I was her caretaker. And, mm-hmm. and Let's be clear. I, just We're going to talk about this later. Your mom was an alcoholic, and you yes. talk about that quite a lot in the film. But Absolutely, because it shaped me. I mean, I, I think that that was the, the first real true shaping mechanism in my life was navigating alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and and you used the word compartmentalize before. And the thing that's so interesting is I also had a very traditional father. And from a very early age, I would put in my topsiders, my Lacoste shirt, and my jeans, and I would be that girl at my dad's house. You know, and that was dinner at six, and kids ate in the kitchen, and the parents ate in the dining room, and, and you know, waspy, wealthy life. And then I had my mom, small apartment, Manhattan, bohemian, all artist friends, all different walks of life. And, and so I, I was playing a different role in that world. So I think by the time Pretty Baby happened, it was just yet another persona to, to jump into. Were you surprised by the controversy and was there enough controversy? Shock. I was, I was shocked by it. I, I have to say I was shocked by that. I'm sure we'll get to Calvin Klein. I was shocked by that. Now, maybe I was shocked because I was naive or stupid or I don't know. But there was no level of true, deep discomfort and and sense of abuse during the filming. I mean, I find it fascinating that nobody seemed to to have a problem with Susan really slapping me across the face in real life. 12 times, or working at an 11-year-old. Susan Sarandon, for people who don't. And I know her today, so I, she's a lovely, brilliant actress. Um, but no one had a problem with working an 11-year-old 12, 14-hour days mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with shoes that made her feet bleed. Like Now, the, obviously, the public would not know that, and I'm, I'm, I understand that, but it, it just was so fascinating to me that things that people were objecting to were, they phased me the least. Interesting. Because they were all fake. Do you know what I mean? We Yeah. We can, and you, was, would, you would, as a child, have no idea of the larger implications, right? No, the, the, and you're yeah. not thinking thematically. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not thinking of the effect it will have on on people in that way. I mean, and again... It, this is not just a mechanism to, to you know, exonerate myself in any way. I was surrounded by those movies. Yeah. So you felt comfortable in that thing. And then you mentioned Blue Lagoon. That was age mm-hmm. 14. I think I've seen it 103 times. I'm oh, my God. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. It's not. Uh, um, you were discovering your sexuality. Okay, so here's the thing. That's a th- I wasn't discovering my sexuality. No, I know that. The girl in the movie. Was. Right. Okay, but the, right. We- the weird thing, which I actually did not know until I saw the documentary, that that was their focus. That's what they wanted. They wanted to actually capture on film, my awakening. Yes, they did. How pathetic is that? First of all, how about directing and how about acting? Yeah. So, you know, that to me is so interesting and divisive that 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 was their perspective and how, I don't know, it just made me lose so much respect. Which you were not aware of. I was not aware of Christopher Atkins, who was older than you. He was 18, I think, at the time. Yeah, he was 18. And they wanted to make it be real. They wanted wanted us to fall in love. Mm-hmm. And they went, and they clearly just didn't know me. I mean, I've always been pretty stubborn, but the more you push me into anything, the the more I resist. And I did not listen. I understand being sort of dictated to on camera, but but with regards to my innermost feelings, somehow I was able to 
protect those. How do you look at something like Blue Lagoon and uh, and Pretty Baby today? When you have you watched it? I have only watched Pretty Baby, um, and I've watched it multiple times. Mm-hmm. And it's why I wrote my thesis on it um, because I just think it's probably or possibly the only real, true, beautiful film I've ever been in. Um, It's the only piece of art, I think, that I've gotten to experience in my film career on so many different levels. And when I was older and writing about it, I was able to sort of really dissect, dissect it thematically, dissect it cinematically, and I just gained even more of an appreciation for it because the hours were so long. It was an arduous, hot shoot. And then on top of it, the uproar and the vitriol and the, and the attack was so shocking and hurtful because nobody was talking about the film. They were talking about the implications and the societal impact, but they weren't they weren't talking about how beautiful the film was. And right. Well, I, there's a lot going on there. There's there's a lot of reasons why that would make people uncomfortable. I get I get it. I guess I just felt like it was a double standard. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I I felt like it was a true story. It was beautiful and I felt protective of it. And the uproar was just so insulting and and difficult for me to... But now on Endless Love, you said you felt uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable because Zeffirelli was so dismissive. This is is Franco Zeffirelli. Franco Zeffirelli. And now these stars of Romeo and Juliet are suing Paramount because they allege that he misled the two actors about nudity in a scene. Yeah. Well, I don't... Nothing shocks me about that. I'm sure he told the studio one thing, told the kids another, and then you know, wanted to be an artist and, or as an artist, I don't take that away, God arrest him. But um, I, I was uncomfortable because I was older, right? So I was 16 at this point and I was uncomfortable with the way he spoke to me, the way he handled me. There was nothing paternal. There was nothing kind. Mm -hmm. Um, It was all making fun of my voice and 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 I was never going to be good enough and he was fawning over the boy and I was just sort of like the workhorse the vehicle the vehicle and, yeah the vehicle and 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 oh the beauty look at the beauty and it was just sort of like really like that's it like the, that's what you're going to go for when I had seen Romeo and Juliet and it, you know and I was a fan, and then to be able to... Yeah, to be in that. Yeah. So he made you uncomfortable as teetering like an object. Or as, a, a, as a person. As a, as a prop, really. You know, as a prop. prop. And as a vehicle. And to me, it was... Maybe I didn't know it exactly then, but it was a missed opportunity. I mean, you know, I didn't have to do the nude scenes in Blue Lagoon or in Endless Love. But I had a body double, like all the swimming stuff when you see the butt and all that not me. I was always covered. I, my hair was taped down to my body. And so an endless love, all the close-ups and all the body stuff, you, if you kind of really dissect it, you don't really ever see. And 
that was my mom. And I think probably Franco Zeffirelli was disgruntled by that. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me ask you, you say a missed opportunity for what? What was the missed opportunity? I think he could have taught me more and Mm -hmm. shepherded me more in my talent. I think he could have brought more out. I think he could have directed me instead of just make fun of my voice. And like, I think I, that director in particular with that film, that film was a more nuanced, it was a darker, deeper story. Blue Lagoon is pretty yeah, surface. Pretty basic. You know, they didn't, they weren't pretending to be anything. So you haven't seen that movie in a long time. Blue Lagoon? Yeah. No, I can't, I can't, I can't even listen to my, my voice and, you know, Zeffirelli would agree, but, um, I just don't know if it, I don't think I'm that good in it. I don't think, <laughs> okay. I just don't think I'm that good. I, I think I was genuinely good in Pretty Baby. And I, and I feel that there was actual talent and it, these, these men in particular didn't nurture it, didn't. No, no. And, and they could, they could have looked better. You know, he, Zeffirelli could have gotten an Academy Award out of me. You know, I mean, I think that that's, and and that's very vapid. I don't know if he was very interested. I think many of these people are selfish fucks, but that's different. That's my attitude. But in Calvin Klein ads, actually, when I rewatch them again, they're fantastic, but also disturbing. Also disturbing. At the same time, the way you move, you're acrobatic, you're funny, uh, intelligent. Um, again, causing a lot of controversy at the time. And I remember this. I remember it very clear. And they did sell a lot of jeans. So how do you look at those ads then and how do you see them now? I think they're as brilliant now as they were then. I think they were, you know, it shocked me that they were pulled. Again, it's sort of puritanical America. It's like there's such a double standard. But it was such a um, feather in my cap to be able to do those commercials well, to memorize a monologue that was a minute long, not mm-hmm. easy to do, while doing choreography. So I, I more I went into again maybe compartmentalized or, or whatever that is, but again there was zero discomfort. Now I look at the commercials now, and I have watched them many times. I I understand the way it you know mm-hmm. panned up and the way it yeah did. you have an unbuttoned top nothing comes between me and my Calvin well, it, very it, it was actually a rhetorical question mm-hmm. I get do it. you want to know what comes between me and my Calvin's nothing and I used that phrase multiple times in my life I had a doll named Blabby and I had a dog named Clipper and I would say nothing comes between you know what Come, nothing comes between me and my dog my ladder. right but in that case I think they're talking about underwear no underwear yeah I do I do I think they're making well, that leap but I, I, you know everyone can have their own but you know what again the caliber of people you've got Avedon so it's sort of I didn't I was so proud of those commercials yeah I wanted every so you were shocked again by shocked the reaction by the fact that there was I was like that I'm not wearing underwear, like you're going to reduce this thing to not wearing underwear. Okay. Well, Uh, it it could be because of what came before it. You had been objectified for years. And maybe that's why they chose me. I don't, I mean, who the hell knows? I happen to have looked that way, but it was just so, and I, I never have been the kind of person like, I can't catch a break. 
But I do remember thinking, are you kidding me? Like, mm-hmm. and, and it's not going to end. It's never going to end. And I remember saying to myself, don't think that this is ever going to end. People are going to, this is going to be, controversy is going to follow you. You've been labeled that person and you'll probably never escape it. Yeah, well, and it also leached into the interviews. One of the things I found very impressive is the huge amount of poise that you had at a young age. It was really striking. Interviewers, especially mainly men, but also more than a few women, ask you what I pretty inappropriate question. Here's a clip of one of those moments. You know, we talked about this image that is portrayed of Brooke Shields. It was a sensuous, sexy, woman-child image. And yet, uh, in your real personal life, you don't have that much freedom to just run around and do what you want to do. You don't date... Um, well, alone yet. Just like a regular kid, I don't really. Mm-hmm. I do every once in a while. Well, it's going to be tough for me to walk away from here thinking of you as just a regular kid, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's asking it on a date there. I'm not clear. That was really creepy. And this sort of like, isn't she, is she not the most beautiful? Yes, yes, yes. And and, and you're kind of going, what, what do you do with that? You can't do, any, you didn't do anything to get to look like that. You've done something that you're there for, which is a production of something or a something. And then then that's all that they can focus on. And you think, wow, when when am I going to meet some smart people? <laughs> <laughs> all right. But at one point in the Hulu documentary, you say, sometimes I'm amazed that I survived any of it. What did you mean by that? I, I don't know where I got that kind of poise from. I don't know where I got perspective. I really don't. Again, nothing was more important than keeping my mother alive. That's where you got your poise from. I know many children of alcoholics. They are very, they know how to handle things. I don't know how else to say it. And you're you're constantly aware. You're vigilant. Um, you can read a room, you know, and it's so interesting because if you look, I mean, obviously people are going to look at my face. Maybe you don't have to know me. Maybe you do. There was so much going on because when they cut to me, you can see my little baby 12-year-old brain making sure my mom's okay, mm-hmm. trying to focus on listening to this person, planning my answer, thinking about how I can't wait to go get fried chicken. It was like whatever the thing was, my version of um, self-protection or survival was to constantly affirm that what I was in was not my real life. Right, which is this is play acting. All of it was play acting or this is not my real life. This is not, I have a dog. I have friends. I had a horse. We were going to go to this Italian restaurant for dinner. So there were all these sort of things that were going on in my mind that it's why every time the director called cut, I would stick my tongue out or make a funny face because I wanted the world to know that that's not who I was, that I had a real life. I want to talk about your mom being an alcoholic. It's a big part of the documentary. You talked about her not being a momager, you know, the idea of pushing, and you had a great anecdote about that, about other mothers, you know, I'll buy you a horse if you do this this thing. And she wasn't like that, and she was very loose. You're very kind to your mother in the documentary. Do you think she put you in situations you shouldn't have been in, or do you feel regretful about that or any anger towards her and then having to deal with her drinking, which is a disease. I think the biggest situation that she put me in that was difficult to handle was her drinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was such a pervasive reality in in our whole lives together Mm -hmm. that that to me was the most damaging 
um, aspect of, of my life, it kind of, it made everything else pale in comparison. It's as if you, you couldn't really shock me or, or, you know, that wasn't, it just wasn't as important to me as her sober and her sobriety was so, you know, her moments of sobriety were, were few and far between, you know, so. Yeah, you staged an intervention. You talked about it. My first one. Rehab, and it, it, didn't, it didn't stick at all. No, and, and the interesting thing about that when I look back is when she said, I'll go, but I'm going for you, not me. I thought that was the best news in the world. I thought, yes, you've done it. You saved your mother. And she loves you so much, and you're going to make the difference. Well, you talk to any child of an alcoholic or anybody, it's the kiss of death, you know? Yeah, it is, yeah. And, but my, me as a little 13-year-old girl, I was so proud and happy. That stuff is the stuff that is so sad to me about that. But see what you just said, you were a 13-year-old girl. I was a, right? I was a baby. Kid. You were a kid. <laughs> you know, so... Did she push me into that? I mean, these movies that I did, they were the safest I ever felt. Mm -hmm. I had a whole team of people that needed to keep her alive to, to keep me alive. You know, I had a, mm -hmm. we had call sheets and rules and regulations and, and timeframes and it was so safe. You know, just living with an alcoholic, you don't know one minute to the next. So the movies were a safe place for you versus being home. Yeah, they were four or five months at a time of um, predictability. And I knew that there were other babysitters to watch her. <laughs> right, right. And it wasn't you. No, and it wasn't all me and I wasn't alone. We'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. I made a career out of taking to task some of the tech industry's biggest players. And honestly, some of these guys, and they're all guys, really had no clue what they were doing and they could probably have benefited from some of the resources available at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a top source for smart management thinkers. Cultivated by some of the greatest minds in business, the Harvard Business Review is a trove of rigorous insight and best practices. It's more than just the flagship magazine, too. You can find the same level of expertise on hbr.org, and for just $10 a month, a subscription unlocks unlimited access to a variety of resources like hundreds of articles, podcasts, newsletters, case studies, and so much more. I use HBR all the time to look up all kinds of cases, and not just in tech, and also listen to their podcasts, I look at their newsletters, and I I really, 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 most of all, like the articles, which have a different perspective that I might have to give me ideas. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, to save 10% off your HBR subscription, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the Promo code CARA. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI powered place. 
Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So one thing you did is you went to Princeton in 1983, which made headlines. I remember I grew up in Princeton. Uh Um, You walked out of your life to do this. You were ascended. What was the decision behind that? Just, I have to get away from my mom or I'm going to, I'm not an idiot. I'm not just this creature. I, I, I am more than just what you see on the outside. And no one has been interested in, in anything I have to say or my opinion. And I have been put into this pretty category and a, that's something I have nothing to do with. I wanted to, to prove to myself that I could be more, that I was more because my brain was atrophying, you know, it was exhausted. It was, and, and, you know, I didn't want to leave my mother. Mm-hmm. I was desperate my first semester. I was so homesick. It was gut-wrenching. And I thought, okay, I can commute. Why don't I just live at home? Plus, if I wasn't at home, who was going to take care of her? You know, so there was that piece. Um, And then I just, I wanted that feather in my cap. Mm -hmm. To show you're not the pretty one, not just the pretty one. And I kind of wanted to sort of say, fuck all of you, you know? Yeah, you think this? Well, guess what? Now I'm going to challenge you. Right. I always knew that that was, there was so much more in me, you know. Which you wanted to prove by going to college. Well, I also wanted to, yes, prove, but that's also a bit ego-based. Like, who gives a shit, really? Like, but what I wanted was I wanted my own time. I wanted my own um, thoughts. And I wanted to sort of stop the noise and I wanted to be normal. You know, I wanted, I didn't want Hollywood friends, you know, I wanted real people and I wanted diverse people. I wanted people from different lifestyles and thought processes and, and, you know, and I think that I just, I knew there was more, you know, entertainment is a very sort of incestuous, it's, um, and it's small, it's very narrow, you know, and it's it's predicated on very sort of 
pathetic things, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. No, absolutely. It's full of fear and loathing and insecurity. Yeah, and self-hatred and deprecation and, you know, and so it's like... And then you're done. And then you're over. You wrote this book, this memoir that was not, it was called On Your Own, but it wasn't on your own. It wasn't anything about you. No, and they um, screwed and, me over from day one. Yeah, yeah. I like the, the leg warmer part. That was my favorite. Oh, but I mean, it was so insulting to me. And I've been desperately trying to find that first chapter that I actually penned myself. Um, but that was just, that was such a moment where it's so interesting. That was so much more insulting to me than any of the other shit people wrote about me. This was in 85 you wrote this. And one of the big things that got a lot of attention is you said you were still a virgin and they marketed the hell out of that. Oh, that was it. It was, was, I was forever deemed. (laughs) Yes. And my kids were IVF, so who knows? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. You do. Um, One of the things, though, when you did come out, you write this thing and you were going to move into, you thought you'd move into acting and higher level acting. But as is the case with Hollywood, they forget you right away. Um, And so you were trying to get roles. And in this documentary, uh, you talk about your Me Too moment of being sexually assaulted and and being surprised. And it just you describe it in a way many people describe how this thing, this kind of thing happens to them. And I want to play a clip from the documentary. This is uh, when you're talking about the aftermath of the assault. I wanted to erase the whole thing from my mind and body and just keep on the path that I was on. And the system had never once come to help me, you know? So I just had to get stronger on my own, you know? That's quite a line. The system never came to help me and I had to be stronger. This is something that plays throughout your career, Mm -hmm. really. So you were good at this. I think it's a common, I think it's common. I think especially where assault is, I just interviewed um, Dr. Nicole Badera, who is a sociologist who studies the systematic abuse and sexual violence and and the myriad of different ways that it, it shows itself. Um, and she, you know, we talked about this. I did not know that my reaction was so common, but she sort of broke it down for me. And one of the things that we discussed is that it is so rare that there are ramifications for the abuser and the perpetrator. And we've seen over time, now it's slightly different with the Me Too and with en masse women kind of that are able to be bonded together and, and fight X or this person or that person. But in, in that era and where I was in my career, it would have been labeled a desperate plea and cry for fame and for notoriety. Right. And the actual issue of it would have been... I would have been victim shamed. I would have been, why did you go up to the room? Why did you Which go you were aware of at the time. I, I was totally aware of it. There, my career was in such a bad place and I was so embarrassed. Um, I, I was just embarrassed by who I was as an actress, all the while having extreme fame. And the two did not make, they did not meet. And they were, it was demoralizing and devastating for me. Yeah. And all I wanted was to work. And and I had to work for money. I mean, I needed money, but I also, it was where I was the freest and happiest. So it, by the time this moment in my life happened, 
I was vulnerable. I was weak. I was hungry for validation, attention, not really as much attention because I had enough attention, but um, a possible creative opportunity. You have two daughters. I do. Um, I have three sons and one daughter. I think about this oh. a lot since I've had a daughter. And wow. <laughs> I have a three-year-old. A yeah. three-year-old? Um, I, think I can't about tell it. if I'm jealous or just like, oof. I have a one-year-old too. So oh anyway, <laughs> I think about this a lot. She happens to be very pretty. And I've noticed men, t- the way they talk to her, and it's certainly the first thing they say, right? So there's been a lot of change in the industry, Me Too, intimacy coordinators. But our society hasn't. Like the Hollywood has sort of shifted in terms of trying to protect women. But social media, it continues that idea it's, it's hard to imagine that films like Pretty Baby and Blue Lagoon could be made now. Oh, I don't think they could. Uh, they'd have 30-year-olds playing 13-year-olds, right? I don't think they Correct. could. I mean, my daughters sort of talk about that in the film. I mean, you couldn't mm-hmm. make those movies now. Right. But how do you imagine the society hasn't changed? Girls are becoming increasingly sexualized. Um, when you look at social media, that hasn't changed. It feels like that. Um, do you consider your experience, to, if you could tell them something about it, um, it's so interesting because my younger daughter was very upset about the movie. Um, and I can see why. And, and, and she was upset about anything bad happening to her mommy, you know, and that, that I understand. I mean, that's, that's, I get it. Uh, what's terrifying to me is that they think that they have control of it because they dictate their TikToks and their social media and all that. And their argument is, it's, it's, but it's on my terms and I'm doing it. But they don't seem to understand how it's feeding the monster. You know, on the one hand, they're all so righteous about, you know, my body, my choice. Yes, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, but they, they think they're being... Um, feminists, <laughs> they think that because they're controlling their image or they think they are, that somehow they're impervious to all of, all of what's really happening and what hasn't changed. And that just, you know, I, I thought that the effect that the film would have on them, I thought it was going to be different for my younger girl. I thought she would sort of take this and say, oh, wow, the world can be scary. I better take care of myself. And she, it was a different conversation and, and it's a continuing conversation to try to really say to them, you know, I mean, they still say things like once we had a conversation and that there were certain expectations from them, from boys. And that to me was like, you know, a thousand steps back, mm-hmm. you know, well, I'm going to be expected to do this if I do this. I'm just thinking, no, you, no one gets to fucking expect anything from you or your body. And I'm, look at me, look at what was expected of me. And I fought through it and, and shut down and compartmentalized and, you know, but that's not a way to live either, you know? So it, there was just, it worries me for them. I mean, I'm hoping for the best, but it does worry me that they don't, they don't fully get it. Yeah, I get it. But last, very last question, what would this Brooke say to that Brooke, 11-year-old Brooke, when you're starting on this? Um, listen, listen to yourself more and 
approve of yourself more. Don't look outside for other people's approval because they, they can't give it to you and they don't want to. No, I would say don't be such a good girl, Brooke. Oh, I don't mind being a good girl. You really are. And I don't mind it because I, isn't it amazing how much I still love what I do? Like to be able to come through all this and not be so angry and jaded. Like I love being on a set. I'm going to Phuket for seven weeks, like to do another Netflix um, um, rom-com. And it's like, I'm like a little kid. To me, I didn't lose. That was not stripped of me. Mm-hmm. And it never will be. And I'm, I'm proud of that. Well, let's end on that. Wow, her points about the end, uh, that her daughters, you know, that really resonated with me, that her daughters feel they have agency and therefore it's safe, therefore can't be taken advantage of. But they of. are, and, and she, that was her point. I feel, I mean, that's really resonant. I feel that all the time. I feel I've been given a narrative of, oh, well, I have agency over this. This was my choice. Therefore, when things happen, when people have expectations, mm-hmm. you feel like you're in control, even though you know, like bodily, you know, sometimes you're not in control. That's correct. It's a really difficult thing. I, I, I honestly think about it. I've talked to my sons a lot about it, that idea of giving choice and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And, um, you know, it's very difficult because of the way genders are still stuck in the same paradigms over and over again. Yeah. I I don't know how that changes. I don't think it does. It must be, you could hear it in her voice, just how scary that is for her having had her experience Mm -hmm. with her mother and wanting something different. Mm. This is very complex what happened to her and including with her mom. And I think that she's sticking with the idea of you know, this is a little more complex than you think. It's an interesting way to approach this. And I think um, she's so good at compartmentalizing, as she says herself. She thought it was all fake or playing or playing a role or whatever. Yeah, and also that this was a thing that saved her. Mm-hmm. Yes. That it took her away from that dangerous place of home. It gave her structure, predictability, care for her mother, um, a shared burden, right? Mm-hmm. And. Like, it's hard to see that as victimization when you get so much as well from that. Right, right, right. It's sort of a, it's sort of a stuck. As you said at one point, you know, I was extremely famous and extremely out of work. I mean, think Mm -hmm. about that. Like that's, and the thing with her mom was the key part of this uh, documentary, I thought. And, you know, it was well known that she had a drinking problem. She talked about it over the many years. And so when you're looking at those clips, which are amazing, this archives is amazing of her. Her face blanks over, and you could see her calculating what to say, even at 11 years old. Well, it shaped—I mean, her mother shaped her, mm-hmm. sent her on the career path she was on. Yeah. That poison confidence. I mean, what's what Walter Isaacson told us, like, every story starts with a parent. Mm-hmm. He was talking about dads and their sons. Yeah. Can be true of moms, too. 100%. You mentioned you think about this a lot with your daughter, with Clara. Mm-hmm. What do you take away from this that you would kind of go back and share with Amanda or go back and share with your daughter in a few years or— I don't know, 10 years. Well, I want her to think about having agency and what it actually means and what her what her dangers are, too, as a woman. I talked to you about my sons don't feel any sense of danger. They're big white guys in America, like, and they mm-hmm. never feel unsafe. And so I don't want her to be scared of everything, but she's got to be aware. I do. I, I have had, a, you know, as she gets a little bigger, 
all men say things to her that I'm, and I'm not sensitive. I'm really not. Women and men. Women and men. Remark on her prettiness. Yes. And I'm like, I I sometimes want to say, you know, and I have to always go, and she's smart, but I feel even stupid saying that. Um, It's just, I, I see it and I'm like, oh, pretty works really well. And I think she talked about this is she lived in the handsome bubble, the pretty bubble and, and it advantaged her, but it also disadvantaged her. And so it was just, it was interesting. It's complicated. You don't want to feel sorry for the pretty girl, but you know. Yeah. You have to toe that line Mm -hmm. of being pretty, but not being a vehicle, right? not being, not being art or just decorative, right? Right. Decorative. Yeah. But certainly it's something that I think if you have beauty, there's, power in that and also uh, being boxed in by that. And if you're not, quote, conventionally pretty or obviously pretty, as mm-hmm. Izzy said on Grey's Anatomy, mm-hmm. if you're not obviously pretty, um, you thirst for that yeah. as well, I think. And that is its own danger. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, the, word, the power dynamics of this thing was fascinating in so many levels. And, you know, she's a very deep and complex person. And I think you don't think about Brooke Shields like that. You think of her like a like a billboard. And she's not a billboard. Yeah. I've had the opportunity to meet her at a couple of dinners or events and things like that and, and meet her and see her interact with her mm-hmm. daughter, her eldest daughter. Um, it was great. And I think, I mean, you never know because you, you don't know, but I think she's a great mom. Mm-hmm. And I think that she's she shows up just like she showed up in this interview, kind of honest mm-hmm. and and vulnerable, present, and very self-aware and able to see the kind of the joys of her life and, and the, the things that have been hard. She's clearly kind to her mother. She's very kind to someone who you, you could easily be angry at. But, you know, she has that bond, so. At the end of the day, it's still your mom. Yeah. All right. Want to read us out, Kara? Yep. Today's show was produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Christian Castro-Rossell, Rafaela Seward, and Megan Burney. Our engineers are Fernando Arruda and Rick Kwan. Our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get a pair of leg warmers. If not, you get a pair of my old leg warmers. Yes, I still have them. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher, and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. We'll be back on Thursday with more.